When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and I'm proud to announce that we're beginning one of the great historical fictions of its time today with H. Ryder Haggard's Marie, the fifth book in Haggard's Alan Quartermain series, one of which, King Solomon's Minds, we covered over at 1001 Stories for the Road. All of Haggard's novels are filled with tense action and adventure, and this one, Marie, is unique because it offers a love story for all time, played out against the backdrop of the Dutch migration from the tip of southern Africa northward, across land held by the fierce Zulu tribe. This migration, known as the Great Trek, involved wagon trains much the same as the pioneer movement westward in America in the early half of the 19th century, and the dangers involved were very similar. Here we find a young Alan Quartermain, who in later life will become a world-renowned hunter and explorer, falling in love with Marie, the daughter of a Boer farmer, the Boers being descendants of the first Dutch who settled South Africa and who were not in favor of the English and their colonizing ways. It was Haggard's Alan Quartermain who inspired Indiana Jones and dozens of heroes like him, and my hope is that his story as a young man will inspire our listeners as well. Join me now as we go back in time to 1836 to Cape Colony in Southern Africa. Marie an episode in the life of the late Alan Quartermain by H. Ryder Haggard Preface The author hopes that the reader may find some historical interest in the tale set out in these pages of the massacre of the Boer general Retief and his companions at the hands of the Zulu king Dingaan. Save for some added circumstances, he believes it to be accurate in its details. The same may be said of the account given of the hideous sufferings of the Trek Boers who wandered into the fever veld, there to perish in the neighborhood of Delagoa Bay. Of these sufferings, especially those that were endured by Treachard and his companions, a few brief contemporary records still exist, buried in scarce works of reference. It may be mentioned also that it was a common belief among the Boers of that generation that the cruel death of Retief and his companions and other misfortunes which befell them were due to the treacherous plottings of an Englishman, or of Englishmen, with the despot, Dingaan. Chapter 1. Alan Learns French Although in my old age I, Alan Quartermain, have taken to writing, after a fashion, never yet have I set down a single word of the tale of my first love and of the adventures that have grouped around her beautiful and tragic history. I suppose this is because it has always seemed to me too holy and far off a matter, as holy and far off as is that heaven which holds the splendid spirit of Marie Marais. But now, in my age, that which was far off draws near again, and at night, in the depths between the stars, sometimes I seem to see the opening doors through which I must pass, and leaning earthwards across their threshold, 
with outstretched arms and dark and dewy eyes, a shadow long forgotten by all save me, the shadow of Marie Marais. An old man's dream, doubtless, no more. Still, I will try to set down that history which ended in so great a sacrifice, and one so worthy of record, though I hope that no human eye will read it until also I am forgotten, or at any rate have grown dim in the gathering mists of oblivion. And I am glad that I have waited to make this attempt, for it seems to me that only of late have I come to understand and appreciate at its true value the character of her of whom I tell, and the passionate affection which was her bounteous offering to one so utterly unworthy as myself. What have I done, I wonder, that to me should have been decreed the love of two such women as Marie and that of Stella, also now long dead, to whom alone in the world I told all her tale. I remember I feared lest she should take it ill, but this was not so. Indeed, during our brief married days, she thought and talked much of Marie, and some of her last words to me were that she was going to seek her, and that they would wait for me together in the land of love, pure and immortal. So with Stella's death, all that sight of life came to an end for me, since during the long years which stretched between then and now I have never said another tender word to a woman. I admit, however, that once, long afterwards, a certain little witch of a Zulu did say tender words to me, and for an hour or so almost turned my head, an art in which she had great skill. This I say because I wish to be quite honest, although it, I mean my head, for there was no heart involved in the matter, came straight again at once. Her name was Mamina, and I have set down her remarkable story elsewhere. To return, as I have already written in another book, I passed my youth with my old father, a Church of England clergyman, in what is now the Craddock district of the Cape Colony. Then it was wild place enough, with a very small white population. Among our few neighbors was a Boer farmer of the name of Henri Murray, who lived about fifteen miles from our station, on a fine farm called Maris Fontaine. I say he was a Boer, but, as may be guessed from both his Christian and surname, his origin was Huguenot. His forefather, who was also named Henri Marais, although I think the Marais was spelt rather differently then, having been one of the first of that faith who emigrated to South Africa to escape the cruelties of Louis Fourteenth at the time at the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Unlike most Boers of similar descent, these particular Marais, for, of course, there are many other families so called, never forgot their origin. Indeed, from father to son, they kept up some knowledge of the French tongue, and among themselves often spoke it after a fashion. At any rate, it was the habit of Henri Marais, who was excessively religious, to read his chapter of the Bible, which it is, or was, the custom of the Boers to spell out every morning, should their learning allow them to do so, not in the tall or patois Dutch, but in good old French. I have the very book from which he used to read now, for curiously enough, in after years, when all these events had long been gathered to the past, I chanced to buy it among a parcel of other works at the weekly auction of odds and ends on the market square of Maritzburg. I remember that when I opened the great tome, bound over the original leather boards in buckskin, and discovered to whom it had belonged, I burst into tears. There was no doubt about it, for, as was customary in old days, this Bible had sundry fly-leaves sewn up with it for the purpose of recording of events important to its owner. The first entries were made by the original Henri Marais, and record how he and his compatriots were driven from France, his father having lost his life in the religious persecutions. After this comes a long list of births, marriages, and deaths continued from generation to generation, 
and amongst them a few notes telling of such matters as the change of the dwelling-places of the family, always in French. Towards the end of the list appears the entry of the birth of the Henri Marais whom I knew, alas, too well, and of his only sister. Then is written his marriage to Marie Labouchagne, also be it noted, of the Huguenot stock. In the next year follows the birth of Marie Marais, my Marie, and after a long interval, for no other children were born, the death of her mother. There was nothing remarkable about my introduction to Marie Marais. I did not rescue her from any attack of a wild beast or pull her out of a raging river in a fashion suited to romance. Indeed, we interchanged our young ideas across a small and extremely massive table, which in fact had once done duty as a block for the chopping up of meat. To this hour I can see the hundreds of lines running crisscross upon its surface, especially those opposite to where I used to sit. One day, several years after my father had emigrated to the Cape, the Hare Marais arrived at our house in search, I think, of some lost oxen. He was a thin, bearded man with rather wild, dark eyes set close together, and a quick, nervous manner, not in the least like that of a Dutch boor, or so I recall him. My father received him courteously, and asked him to stop to dine, which he did. They talked together in French, a tongue that my father knew well, although he had not used it for years. Dutch he could not, or rather would not, speak if he could help it, and Mr. Marais preferred not to talk English. To meet someone who could converse in French delighted him, and although his version of the language was that of two centuries before, and my father's was largely derived from reading, they got on very well together, if not too fast. At length, after a pause, Mr. Marais, pointing to myself, a small and stubbly-haired youth with a sharp nose, asked my father whether he would like me to be instructed in the French tongue. The answer was that nothing would please him better. Although, he added severely, to judge by my own experience where Latin and Greek are concerned, I doubt his capacity to learn anything. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at so an arrangement was made that I should go over for two days in each week to Maris Fontaine, sleeping there on the intervening night, and acquire the knowledge of the French tongue from a tutor who Mr. Marais had hired to instruct his daughter in that language and other subjects. I remember that my father agreed to pay a certain proportion of this tutor's salary, a plan which suited the thrifty boor very well indeed. Thither, accordingly, I went in due course, nothing loath, for on the veil between our station and Maris Fontaine, Many pa and coran, that is, big and small bustards, were to be found, to say nothing of an occasional buck, and I was allowed to carry a gun, which even in those days I could use fairly well. So to Maris Fontaine I rode on the appointed day, attended by a hot-and-tot after-rider, a certain Hans, of whom I shall have a good deal to tell. I enjoyed very good sport on the road, arriving at the stead laden with one pow, two coran, and a little clip-springer buck which I had been lucky enough to shoot as it bounded out of some rocks in front of me. There was a peach orchard planted around Maris Fontaine, which just then was a mass of lovely pink blossom, and as I rode through it slowly, not being sure of my way to the house, a lanky child appeared in front of me, 
clad in a frock which exactly matched the color of the peach bloom. I can see her now, her dark hair hanging down her back, and her big shy eyes staring at me from the shadow of the Dutch cappy which she wore. Indeed, she seemed to be all eyes, like a dickop or thick-headed plover. At any rate, I noted little else about her. I pulled up my pony and stared at her, feeling very shy and not knowing what to say. For a while she stared back at me, being afflicted, presumably, with the same complaint, then spoke with an effort, in a voice that was very soft and pleasant. "'Are you the little Alan Quartermain who is coming to learn French with me?' she asked in Dutch. "'Of course,' I answered in the same tongue, which I knew well. "'But why do you call me little, Missy? I am taller than you.' I added indignantly, for when I was young my lack of height was always a sore point with me. "'I think not,' she replied. "'But get off that horse, and we will measure here against this wall.' So I dismounted, and having assured herself that I had no heels to my boots—I was wearing the kind of rawhide slippers that the Boers called Beldschoon—she took the writing slate which she was carrying—it had no frame, I remember, being, in fact, but a piece of the material used for roofing—and— "'pressing it down tight on my stubbly hair, "'which stuck up then as now, "'made a deep mark in the soft sandstone of the wall "'with the hard-pointed pencil. "'There,' she said, "'that is justly done. "'Now, little Alan, "'it is your turn to measure me.' "'So I measured her, and behold, "'she was taller by a whole half-inch. "'You're standing on my tiptoe,' "'I said in my vexation. "'Little Alan,' she replied, "'To stand on tiptoe would be to lie before the good Lord, "'and when you come to know me better you will learn that, "'although I have a dreadful temper and many other sins, "'I do not lie.' "'I suppose that I looked snubbed and mortified, "'for she went on in her grave, grown-up way. "'Why are you angry because God made me taller than you, "'especially as I am a whole month's older, "'for my father told me so? "'Come, let us write our names against these marks, "'so that in a year or two you may see how you outgrow me.' Then, with the slate pencil she scratched, Marie, against her mark, very deeply, so that it might last, she said, after which I wrote, Alan, against mine. Alas, within the last dozen years chance took me past Marisfontaine once more. The house had long been rebuilt, but this particular wall yet stood. I rode to it and looked, and there faintly could still be seen the name Marie, against the little line, and by it the mark that I had made. My own name and with its subsequent measurements were gone, for in the intervening forty years or so the sandstone had flaked away in places. Only her autograph remained, and when I saw it I think that I felt even worse than I did on finding whose was the old Bible that I had bought upon the market square at Meritsburg. I know that I rode away hurriedly without even stopping to inquire into whose hands the farm had passed. Through the peach orchard I rode, where the trees, perhaps the same, perhaps others, were once more in bloom. Nor did I draw a rein, for the season of the year was that when Marie and I had first met. Nor did I draw a rein for half a score of miles. But here I may state that Marie always stayed just a half an inch the taller in body, and how much taller in mind and spirit, I cannot tell. When we had finished our measuring match, Marie turned to lead me to the house, and, pretending to observe for the first time the beautiful bustard, "'and the two Koran hanging from my saddle, "'also the Klipspringer buck "'that Hans the Hottentot carried behind him on his horse, "'asked, "'Did you shoot all these, Alan Quartermain?' "'Yes,' I answered proudly. 
I killed them in four shots, and the paw and Koran were flying, not sitting, which is more than you could have done, although you were taller, Miss Marie. I do not know, she answered reflectively. I can shoot very well with a rifle, for my father has taught me, but I would never shoot at living things unless I must because I was hungry, for I think that to kill is cruel. But, of course, it is different with men, she added hastily. "'and no doubt you will be a great hunter one day, Alan Quartermain, "'since you already aim so well.' "'I hope so,' I answered, blushing at the compliment, "'for I love hunting, and when there are so many wild things "'it does not matter if we kill a few. "'I shot these for you and your father to eat.' "'Come, then, and give them to him. He will thank you.' "'And she led the way through the gate in the sandstone wall into the yard, "'where the outbuildings stood in which the riding horses "'and the best of the breeding cattle were kept at night.' and so past the end of the long, one-storied house that was stone-built and whitewashed to the stoop or veranda in front of it. On the broad stoop, which commanded a pleasant view over rolling, park-like country where mimosa and other trees grew in clumps, two men were seated drinking strong coffee, although it was not yet ten o'clock in the morning. Hearing the sound of the horses, one of these, Meinherr Moray, whom I already knew, rose from his hide-strung chair, he was, as I think I've said, not in the least like one of the phlegmatic boors, either in person or in temperament, but rather a typical Frenchman, although no member of his race had set foot in France for a hundred and fifty years. At least so I discovered afterwards, for of course in those days I knew nothing of Frenchmen. His companion was also French, Leblanc by name, but of a very different stamp. In person he was short and stout, his large head was bald except for a fringe of curling, iron-gray hair which grew round it just above the ears and fell upon his shoulders, giving him the appearance of a tonsured but disheveled priest. His eyes were blue and watery, his mouth was rather weak, and his cheeks were pale, full, and flabby. When the hair Moray rose, I, being an observant youth, noted that Monsieur Leblanc took the opportunity to stretch out a rather shaky hand and fill up his coffee cup out of a black bottle, from which the smell I judged to contain peach brandy. In fact, it may as well be said at once that the poor man was a drunkard, which explains how he, with all his high education and great ability, came to hold the humble post of tutor on a remote Boer farm. Years before, when under the influence of drink, he had committed some crime in France— I don't know what it was, and never inquired, and fled to the Cape to avoid prosecution. Here he obtained a professorship at one of the colleges, but after a while appeared in the lecture room quite drunk, and lost his employment. The same thing happened in other towns, till at last he drifted to distant Marais-Fontaine, where his employer tolerated his weakness for the sake of the intellectual companionship for which something in his own nature seemed to crave. Also he looked upon him as a compatriot in distress, and a great bond of union between them was their mutual and virulent hatred of England and the English, which in the case of Monsieur Leblanc, who, in his youth had fought at Waterloo and been acquainted with the great emperor, was not altogether unnatural. Henri Marais's case was different, and of that I shall have more to say later. "'Ah, Marie,' said her father, speaking in Dutch, "'so you have found him at last,' and he nodded towards me, adding, "'You should be flattered, little man. Look, you,' "'This missy has been sitting for two hours in the sun waiting for you, "'although I told her you would not arrive much before ten o'clock, "'as your father, the predicant, said you would breakfast before you started. "'Well, it is natural, for she is lonely here, and you are of an age, "'although of a different race.' "'And his face darkened as he spoke the words. "'Father,' answered Marie, 
whose blushes I could see even in the shadow of her cap. I was not sitting in the sun, but under the shade of a peach tree. Also, I was working out the sums that Monsieur Leblanc set me on my slate. See, here they are. And she held up the slate, which was covered with figures, somewhat smudged, it is true, by the rubbing of my stiff hair and of her cap. Then Monsieur Leblanc broke in, speaking in French, of which, as it chanced, I understood the sense, for my father had grounded me in that tongue, and I am naturally quick at modern languages. At any rate, I made out that he was asking if I was the little cochon d'Anglaise, or English pig, whom for his sins he had to teach. He added that he judged I must be, as my hair stuck up on my head. I had taken off my hat out of politeness, as it naturally would do on a pig's back. This was too much for me, so before either of the others could speak, I answered in Dutch, for rage made me eloquent and bold. Yes, I am he, but mine hair. If you are to be my master, I hope you will not call the English pigs any more to me. He answered, Indeed, gammon, that is, little scamp, and pray, what will happen if I am so bold as to repeat that truth? I think, mine hair, I replied, growing white with rage at this new insult, the same that has happened to yonder buck, and I pointed to the clipspringer behind Hans' saddle. I mean that I shall shoot you. Peste! At least the child is plucky, exclaimed Monsieur Leblanc, in French, astonished. From that moment, I may add, he respected me, and never again insulted my country to my face. Then Marais broke out, speaking in Dutch that I might understand. It is you who should be called Pig Leblanc, not this boy, for early as it is, you have been drinking. Look, the brandy bottle is half empty. Is that the example you set to the young? Speak so again, and I turn you out to starve on the veld. Alan Quartermain, although, as you may have heard, and I do not like the English. I beg your pardon. I hope you will forgive the words that this sot spoke, thinking that you did not understand, and he took off his hat and bowed to me, quite in grand manner, as his ancestors might have done to a king of France. Leblanc's face fell. Then he rose and walked away rather unsteadily, as I learned afterwards, to plunge his head in a tub of cold water and swallow a pint of new milk, which were his favorite antidotes after too much strong drink. At any rate, when he appeared again, half an hour later, to begin our lesson, he was quite sober, and extremely polite. When he had gone, my childish anger being appeased, I presented the Herr Marais with my father's compliments, also with the buck and the birds, whereof the latter seemed to please him more than the former. Then my saddlebags were taken to my room, a little cupboard of a place next to that occupied by Monsieur Leblanc, and Hans was sent to turn the horses out with the others belonging to the farm, having first knee-haltered them tightly, so that they should not run away home. This done, the Herr Marais showed me the room in which we were to have our lessons, one of the sit-cammer, or sitting-chambers, whereof, unlike most boarsteads, this house boasted two. I remembered that the floor was made of daga, that is, ant-heap earth mixed with cow-dung, into which thousands of peach-stones had been thrown while it was still soft, in order to resist footwear. A rude, but fairly efficient expedient, and one not unpleasing to the eye. For the rest, there was one window opening onto the veranda, which in that bright climate admitted a shaded but sufficient light, especially as it always stood open. The ceiling was of unplastered reeds. A large bookcase stood in the corner containing many French works, most of them the property of Monsieur Leblanc and in the center of the room was the strong, rough table made of native yellow wood that once had served as a butcher's block. 
I recollect also a colored print of the great Napoleon commanding at some battle in which he was victorious, seated upon a white horse and waving a field marshal's baton over piles of dead and wounded, and near the window, hanging to the reeds of the ceiling, a nest of a pair of red-tailed swallows, pretty creatures that, notwithstanding the mess they made, afforded to Marie and me endless amusement in the intervals of our work. When, on that day, I shuffled slyly into this homely place, and, thinking myself alone there, fell to examining it. Suddenly I was brought to a standstill by a curious choking sound which seemed to proceed from the shadows behind the bookcase. Wondering as to its cause, I advanced cautiously to discover a pink-clad shape standing in the corner like a naughty child, with her head resting against the wall, and sobbing slowly. "'Marie Marais, why do you cry?' I asked. She turned, tossing back the locks of long black hair which hung about her face, and answered, "'Alan Quartermain, I cry because of the shame which has been put upon you and upon our house by that drunken Frenchman.' "'What of that?' I asked. "'He only called me a pig, but I think I've shown him that even a pig has tusks.' "'Yes,' she replied, "'but it was not you he meant. It was all the English, whom he hates, and the worst of it is that my father is of his mind. He too hates the English, and, oh, I am sure the trouble will come of his hatred, trouble and death to many.' "'Well, if so, we have nothing to do with it, have we?' "'I replied with the cheerfulness of extreme youth. "'What makes you so sure?' she said solemnly. "'Hush, here comes Monsieur Leblanc.' "'I hope you enjoyed Chapter 1 of Marie by H. Ryder Haggard. "'Stay tuned next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time "'for Chapter 2, The Attack on Maris Fontaine. "'Until then, everyone, stay safe. "'They will be back soon.' <laughs>